Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money, to understand why the stock market goes up and down, to look at financial legislation that impacts your bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we look at a financial planning topic in more detail and try to help you create some strategies. And then finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question. So if you have a question, you can go to my website, askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and I will probably get in contact with you, we'll put together some information, and then answer it on the air in a way that's educational so that people can get some more knowledge about that issue that's troubling you. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Summary. And this is for the week that is that ended on June 21st. And if you listened to the show last week, <laughs> you will know that I said I expected the market to go down after the Fed spoke. I was pretty confident about it because I decided, you know, either they wouldn't lower rates and the market that had already priced in a quarter point rate cut on the treasuries would get really upset and drop. Or if they indicated that they wouldn't be dropping again in the future and that this was a one and done rate cut, that the market wouldn't be happy with that. In any case, what I did not anticipate was a market rally. And this is why, boys and girls, you should never try to predict the stock market. Because we had a very big rally last Wednesday. I will always admit to you if I get something wrong. Let's talk about what happened a little bit. So the Dow last week wound up a little less than 2.5%. The S&P 500 wound up 2.2%. The NASDAQ wound up just a smidge above 3 Gold also went up at 4.29%. Oil had the biggest rally of the week. It went up 9.67%. I don't think that actually had anything to do with the Federal Reserve. I think that had to do with the situation with Iran and some of the tensions that are in the Middle East. And then finally, the 10-year Treasury yield was down 2.61%. Its current yield, by the way, right now is 2.059%. So if you're rounding, that would be 2.1%. So what happened? What did I get wrong? Well, what I really didn't anticipate happening was a vague, a massively vague statement from the Federal Reserve. They did not raise rates as I suspected they wouldn't last week. The first headline on a major stock market website, and I'm not going to use the name because I think a lot of people had this happen, and I'm not trying to call anybody out, 
But the first headline was Fed doesn't raise rate and doesn't anticipate raising, or I'm sorry, Fed doesn't lower rate and doesn't anticipate lowering rates for the rest of the year. Well, that was weird because then when I looked at the market and it was up several hundred points, that didn't really tie together. So I started reading some more traditional news um, news sources. And there I was seeing headlines that Fed doesn't lower rates, but anticipates lowering rates in the rest of the year. So that was very strange. The headline on the mass media was not exactly the interpretation by the business side. So I let it go a couple of hours, and I went back and I looked at it, and then sure enough, the business site changed its its headline to say, Fed doesn't lower rates, but thinks it may lower rates later in the year. (laughs) And I know why both sides were not providing fake news. There was no fake news in any of these headlines. But what happened is the Fed just spoke in circular language. And so they didn't lower rates, but then they gave compelling reasons why they might lower rates in the future. They provided some compelling reasons why they might not lower rates in the future. And it just all depended on your interpretation whether or not the Fed actually was going to lower rates. Remember, the stock market wants the Fed to lower rates because it's cheaper to borrow money. So, That's the news, and it led to a massive rally. That rally actually held up pretty well for Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. That's why we have such major market gains. So now the question is, what's going to happen next? You know, I really believe Jerome Powell is trying to save his job. And this is uh, Monday, June 24th, when I'm taping this. And just about an hour before I headed for the studio, I saw that the latest tweet from the White House is saying that it's all Jerome Powell's fault that we haven't had this crazy growth if he hadn't raised rates last year, that the market would have gone up and that he should lower rates and, and basically that the White House hates him. So is Jerome Powell going to save his job? That's really the great question of the week. If this was a soap opera, you know, we could pan in really close to his face and we could fade to black. I don't know. I know that he's taking actions trying to appease the White House. It's very obvious in how he's changed, how he speaks, how his last statement was completely undecipherable. And one of the things I had really loved about him last year was how easy he was to understand, how clear and how straightforward. Well, that's gone because it's obvious that he's trying to, I think, buy some time. I think he's hoping that the economic conditions will stay good, that will justify his not lowering the rates. But I'm not sure he's going to have a job in two months. And if he gets fired over this, that's going to be an absolute shame because he really has been doing a good job. And I haven't said that about very many people in this administration, but I am pretty big Jerome Powell um, fan in how he's tried to take care of all of this. And, and I'm not at all sure he's going to have the job in two months. So, you know, we'll keep up with this. If he does get fired, will the market go down? I don't know. The market's on a sugar high right now. So we'll just kind of have to wait and watch. As the news changes, I will let you know. 
Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update in the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the SEC's REG-BI, which stands for Regulation Best Interest, and basically how wound up I am about it and how horrible I think it is. I am not alone in this assessment, and I read a very interesting critique of it this week that was provided by Dr. Ron Rhodes, who is a professor at Western Kentucky University. And I actually had the pleasure of going around with Ron on Capitol Day. We divide out by states and we go and we talk to the different legislators of the different states. And one of the states that I was with from Oklahoma was Kentucky. And so it was really cool to get to talk to Ron for a while. And he is an incredibly smart guy. He points out that one of his concerns with this, he has many, but I want to limit this a little bit for the show, but one of his concerns is the economic impact of what's going to happen when consumers can no longer tell a fiduciary standard of care that's been provided by investment advisors from this new Reg BI that absolutely distinguishes itself specifically from a fiduciary duty provided by brokers. And Reg BI will not actually uphold, and it says flat out, we're not a fiduciary because we're not holding that standard. Remember, they won't tell us what best interest means. They refuse to define the term best interest in the 700-page document that they wrote about it. Well, Dr. Rhodes is concerned that consumers are either going to hear all of this from the beginning and throw their hands up in disgust and say, you know what, I can't trust anybody anymore, and so I'm just going to go ahead and do it myself. And the problem with consumers trying to do it themselves is they have a tendency to be more likely to be subject to stock market bubbles. Now, I'm not going to say the financial services industry can't get all wound up in bubbles as well. And I've seen plenty of advisors go down rabbit trails. But the truth is, if you try to take a disciplined approach to the market, if you can stay one arm's length away from the emotion of the moment, then it's much easier to make rational decisions. When a consumer has their money in the market, it's much harder to keep that distance that someone who is doing this professionally has. Additionally, especially if you're working with a certified financial planner practitioner or you're working with a chartered financial analyst or someone else who has a very reputable degree or certification behind their name, that person simply has more education in the field than you do, and it's all they do all day. So it's not like you're going to your job and trying to do your job and then trying to keep up with the market on the side, and it gets very frustrating, and sometimes the market isn't really clear in how it explains things. And so um, Dr. Rhodes is concerned that there's going to be a huge 
negative economic impact as more and more consumers opt out of the advisory space altogether and say, you know what, I'm going to go do this myself. I think it's an interesting critique. And I think the potential for consumer harm might be a more compelling argument than some of the arguments. And I'm not really sure, but what we may have to see it happen before the regulators will figure out that they made a mistake. But I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting observation. What I would suggest to you as you're listening to this show, you probably still want to work with someone. What you want to do is get their credentials, get their qualifications. I am a huge believer in the Certified Financial Planner designation. I'm also a huge fan of the Chartered Financial Analyst designation. That is more a portfolio management designation, and you're much less likely to be directly working with a CFA than you are a CFP, because CFAs tend to be more on the institutional side, where they're managing like huge amounts of institutional money. But a really great designation And then, you know, I don't care what the law says. Consumers can change the shape of Washington. Demand to work with a fiduciary. An investment advisor will still tell you, yes, I'm a fiduciary. And maybe the way we fix this is with consumers demanding to only work with someone who holds that standard. Now, if I wanted to be cynical, this next story that I want to talk to you about probably recognizes this as well. Last week, there was a huge kerfuffle among the investment advisory community that it looked as though the SEC, in its regulation best interest, had prohibited investment advisors from using the word fiduciary. And it was a big, big deal the first part of the week. Well, there was some clarification that came out that seems to have calmed everyone down but me. I'm still not calmed down about this because the SEC is like, oh, no, no, no. Investment advisors can call themselves fiduciaries, but they can't use that language when they are putting out their form CRS, the... um, Client Relationship Summary. And what it says on that, it's a two-page document presented to clients. It's supposed to show the difference between broker-dealers, investment advisors, and dual registrants. Now, a dual registrant is somebody who's both a broker-dealer and an investment advisor. And I'm going to read this to you. Um, So this is the rule specifically on Form CRS. For example, we are substantially revising our approach to disclosing standard of conduct and conflicts of interest to make this information clearer to retail investors, including, among other changes, eliminating the word fiduciary and requiring firms, whether broker-dealers, investment advisors, or dual registrants, to use the term best interest to describe their applicable standard of conduct, the form CRS rule states. Which means in the summary, the client relationship summary, the only thing most people are going to to read, I am not allowed as an investment advisor and every other investment advisor out there is no longer allowed to use the word fiduciary. 
This is going to be the document that clients are going to refer to by default. It's the summary, right? It's a two-page document. Yes, I will continue to give other forms to clients, all of the other investment advisors out there. We'll give all the rest of the forms, but I'm going to tell you a little story. And I encourage clients to read paperwork. They don't. If they read anything, they're going to read the two-page summary. And in that two-page summary, investment advisors around the United States are now forbidden for calling themselves fiduciaries. And I believe it is one more way that is an attempt to muddy the waters. I believe that it is a way to try to lower the investment advisor to looking more like the broker-dealer. And, oh, look, see, well, they describe themselves with the same words, what could be wrong with that? So I'm completely hacked off about this. And I would encourage you as the consumer, when you go and talk to any financial person, you ask them point blank. Tell them you don't care what's written in the CRS. Are they willing to be a fiduciary or not? With the legal standing. And when they say, well, I'm in your best interest, say, no, no, no. Are you willing to be a fiduciary? And if they don't say yes, I mean, it's your choice what you do at that point. I'm, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to t tell you what to do. I'm going to give you the information. I'm going to let you use your own judgment as to whether or not you actually want to work with a person who refuses to hold that standard. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I want to talk to you about paying off debt. Now, if you've already got all of your debt paid off, that is awesome. I went a little long on the first two segments, so this segment has to be shorter by default. But most people out there who are listening have some debt. Maybe you just have a house payment. Maybe you have a house and a car payment. But I bet a lot of you also have some credit card debt or consumer debt, or you bought some furniture, or you bought some electronics, and it's all on a payment plan, and you're trying to figure out how to pay everything off. So, I would like to spend a little bit of time today helping you create a strategy because it can get really depressing when you have a lot of debt. And a lot of debt stops you from being able to save as easily. It also just kind of tends to overwhelm you and bring you down a little bit. So I'm going to help give you some tri tricks today to help you get out of that debt. Now, if you listen to a lot of financial experts, you know, these media people, they will tell you, you need to organize your debt from the highest interest rate to the lowest interest rate. And you need to start paying off the highest interest rate cards first, and then you need to go down from there. That's great. And if that strategy is working for you right now, you should keep doing it, okay, because there's a lot of economic value. Obviously, if you pay off your highest interest rate card first, you don't have as much interest that you're paying. And so your overall money out of pocket will be lowest if you pay off your highest interest rate card first. 
However, sometimes that's also the largest card balance that people have, and they start chipping it away at it at fifty or hundred dollars a month, and they get kind of discouraged and they quit. And so, what happens then is all of the rest of the debt starts piling up. So, I'm going to give you permission today to pay off your debt any way you want. If you've got five or six small pieces of debt and you would like to pay off the smaller ones and then tackle the big one, you know what? It's okay to do that. Just be aware you're paying more interest than if you had done it the other way. But go ahead and start. I want you to create the strategy so that you can start getting out of debt. I also don't want you to think you have to have huge sums of money to throw at this. You know, we talked last week a little bit about saving money and how people think they need a lot to save, and if they don't have it, then they don't save at all. You'll make the same mistake paying off debt. So go ahead and pay off a smaller amount towards it. Maybe you can just make your minimum payment and fifty dollars. You know what? That's okay because that's fifty dollars towards the principal of your debt. Don't feel like you have to have a huge sum of money because if you feel that way again, you won't start and you'll wind up in trouble. People ask me about zero interest rate cards all the time, and the only thing that worries me about the zero interest rate cards is I see people transfer balances to them, and maybe there's no payments required for six months, so they don't make any payments. Or they just pay off the minimum on a zero interest rate card, and then at the end of it, they may actually have more debt than they had before they transferred it. If you transfer it to a zero interest rate card, I want you to pay off as much towards it as you can. I don't want you to take advantage of that zero interest rate card as kind of a cop out to not have to pay things, because I see that happen a lot. You can get out of debt if you genuinely have more bills than money. You're going to maybe need to try to get another job or maybe get a second job. So I mean, if there's legitimately not enough money, you're going to have to make something happen. However, if you are there, but it's just a matter of discipline, you can do this. And then when you pay off a card, don't cut it up. Put it away. Your debt to credit score is part of what determines your credit rating. So the amount of debt you're using over available credit is your debt to credit ratio, and that debt to credit ratio, the better it is, the better your credit score becomes. So quit using the cards, but don't cut them up, don't cancel them until you have enough available credit that you can afford to do that. Then it might be possible on cards with payments, but be very careful and talk to your financial planner. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma KVOY 104.5 FM for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and this is the segment of the show where I answer questions. One of the most common questions that I get is, "Peggy, when do I have to take distributions 
out of my retirement accounts? And a closely related question to that is, Peggy, I've sold something in my IRA. Do I have to pay taxes? So let's start out by talking in general about the taxability of a retirement account. Retirement accounts are taxable when distributions are taken out of them, not when investments are changed inside of them. So theoretically, you could buy and sell all day long to your heart's content in an IRA. And as long as you don't take any money out of the IRA, those transactions aren't taxable. Now, maybe they're also not wise, but they're not taxable. So you pay your taxes when you take your distributions. And because the IRS has let you defer your tax, eventually they want their money. And they have chosen the age of 70 and a half as the time when you have to begin taking required minimum distributions out of your IRAs. So the year you turn 70 and a half, you will take a required minimum distribution based off of the account balance as of December 31st of the previous year. Then there's a divisor that's provided to you by the IRS. It's not as big of a number as you think. And you take that and you divide it into your account balance, and that's the amount of your RMD. And you'll do that for all of your IRAs, and that's the amount that you have to take out. Now, if you want to postpone it, you can put it off until April 1st of the year after the year you're 70 and a half. But that year then, you would have to take two distributions. One, using the account balance from two years ago now to make up for the one you didn't take last year, and then the one that you owe that year as well using the previous year's December 31st account balance. So if you wait until the April 1st absolutely positively last deadline in the world, you have to take two distributions that year. If you work in a company that has an IRA-based retirement plan, like a SEP or a SIMPLE, you have to take the RMD even if you're still working there. So it's very possible that you're employed and they're putting money into your account or you're deferring it because you're still working and you're over 70 and a half. You also have to take the distributions. You can have money going in and money coming out in the same year, but sometimes employees who have plans like that don't really even pay that much attention to what kind of plan they have, and they don't know that they have to take the distribution while still participating in the plan. Now, if you have a 401k or a 403b or a major large company retirement plan, it is most likely that you do not have to take RMDs from that account until you retire. So if you work until you're 75, that money continues to grow tax deferred. This is an HR question. So if you're working and you're going to be 70 and a half, you need to go talk to HR, 
find out what kind of plan it is, and make sure that you don't have to take distributions. Because if you're a highly compensated employee or a key employee or a stockholder in a major corporation, you may have to take distributions. For de minimis stock ownership or owning not a lot of stock, you probably don't. But this is an HR question because if you don't take the correct amount of required minimum distribution, RMD, then you owe a 50% penalty on the amount you should have taken that you did not take. So if you were supposed to take a $1,000 distribution and you don't do it, you now owe $1,500. You have to take your $1,000 and then you have to pay a 50% penalty. So you don't want this to happen to you. Be very careful. Again, work with a financial planner. Make sure you understand all the intricacies of what you're taking and when you have to take it. I can't believe how fast the show went again. I will see you guys next week. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.